anyway. Uh, well, we started a new series on um, definitions and why they matter, because definitions are very important, because sometimes we can use words that sound the same but mean different things to different people. And language is, is challenging that way, because a lot of us, you know, we, a lot of people even here speak a couple of different languages, and language is a very alive thing, and it's constantly changing and morphing, and, um, you know, words from many years ago don't necessarily mean the same thing today that they used to. And, but definitions are important, and one of the more important reasons is that without shared definitions, a community or a society or a culture will drift apart, will tend to fall apart. And the opposite, though, is also true. If we share definitions that are foundational to who we are and we're operating from those, um, it can make a community stronger. And that's my hope in, in doing this as a church. And a community, in part, is a group of people that share some common definitions. Of course, there's more to it than that, obviously, but that's definitely a part of it. In a community, whether it be a church or a culture or a society, even an entire civilization, um, they may wrestle at times with what to do and how to do it, but if we are working from some shared definitions, some foundational ones, uh, that culture, community, whatever it might be, will likely remain intact if it's in likely be cohesive. But when we do away with or we lose those shared definitions, as Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs that we talked about last week, where there is no vision, the people perish. That means they, they cast off restraint. Um, they just kind of start to drift and move and do their own thing, and they don't have common principles that guide them. And as a church, where we glean many of our shared definitions, especially foundational moral ones and spiritual ones, is from the Bible. That's where we get a lot of our, our shared definitions. And last week, as I closed... As we closed up, I asked you to think about, you know, what is a church? If you were going to define that, what is that to you? And if we had time to share that, um, our definitions with each other, I'm sure that uh, we'd find a lot of similarities in those. And, of course, probably some differences, too. And what is a church? When you think about that, when you think about the word church, what comes to mind? As I talked about last week, Someone can say, I believe in God, but how you define God or what that means can be different for a lot of people. So it's important that we define those things. But what is a church? What do you think of when you think of that word church? What comes to mind? There are different ways people would define that. Um, many people uh, would likely define that as the building that we're inside of at the moment. Very nice air-conditioned building, comfortable place to be. Well, the pews may not be that comfortable, but they're not terrible either. Um, other people might think, well, it's a place you go to get married and buried. Um, sometimes it's defined institutionally, um, sometimes locally by a location. In some cases today, people even define church in a negative way. They see it as something that is not positive, unfortunately. But a large part of the New Testament, a, a, a large portion of the New Testament was written to churches. So a lot of those are their letters that are written to churches. Uh, some of it is teaching, some of it's encouragement, some of it is correction. Acts that we spent so much time in last year is church history. You know, the church getting on its feet and going forward into the future. Romans, the book of Romans is written to several different churches. 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. Those are all letters that are written to churches in a specific location, different locations, and they're written for different reasons. And I've been blessed with the opportunity in my ministry to be able to visit a lot of churches, um, traveled a lot um, before we moved to Australia many years ago now. We spent about 18 months on the road. While I was in seminary, I had a lot of opportunity to go to different churches each week and speak. And like I say, I lived on the road with my family for about 18 months before we came here. And I think I probably enjoyed that more than they did. But during that time, I had the opportunity to speak in two or three different churches every week. And one thing I learned in doing that and having that great opportunity is that every church is different and every church has a personality. It really does. And you can also see that when you read the letters uh, in the New Testament. All of those churches are a little bit different. They've all kind of got their own personality. They've all got their issues, their strengths, their weaknesses, as every church does. And today I'm going to share with you um, a few important aspects that will hopefully help us better answer the question, what is a church? Help us define it. Um, as there almost always are with anything, there are other aspects that define church as well, and some of them important, but here are the ones we're going to look at today, and they are community, identity, diversity, and perpetuity. Community, identity, diversity, and perpetuity. Those are four defining traits that we're going to look at today. And when you read the New Testament, and there's all these different letters that were written to churches. They're often identified by a location. Um, John does that in the book of Revelation. Um, the title of the different books uh, do that as well. Philippians was written to the church at Philippi, for instance. And you probably already understand that a church isn't a location, but a church is located in a, in a city. Uh, like we're located in Rungary. We're located on the Gold Coast. Um, kind of like the church is in this building, but the building isn't the church, even though we call it that. But a church, as it's translated in the New Testament, is a group of people who have been summoned together for a purpose. That's what that word means. It's translated from a Greek word, ekklesia, and church means a group of people who've been summoned together for a purpose. Now, that wasn't a term that was invented to describe church. It was a term that was already in existence, and it was applied to a group of people who had been called together for a reason, for a purpose. Um, so it's not just an assembly, but the purpose that makes church different to other groups. And one of the things that I like to think about is that we share a purpose in common with each other and also with churches throughout history, throughout the, the all the time of Christian history. And we'll talk a little bit more about how Jesus defined that purpose in a little bit. But a church is a diverse community of people who identify with and follow Jesus together. And Jesus is at the head of that community. And a church community also has some shared definitions, as I mentioned. And one of those being that we are a diverse community of people who identify with and follow Jesus together. And we have common unity in shared definitions. And one of the things, or rather a person that brings unity in that every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
We're all, you know, if you're a saved believer, God lives in you, and that's one thing we share in common, and that's something that is unique to a church compared to maybe other community groups. And he unites and he empowers our community. And that's one of the things that makes genuine church community different than any other kind of community. In our community, we agree to strive together to help each other follow Jesus. It's one of the things we do. The purposes, the priorities, the values of Jesus are what we define as highest and best in our community. And a church community is where we are able to come together to contemplate those things and reaffirm ourselves together in what is right and best so we can then go out and live that out in the community around us. And that's one of the reasons that church attendance is important. Um, it's important to attend church, it really is. We affirm together, we contemplate together, we uh, build each other up in what is good and what is right, and we encourage each other in those things. And you know, how can that possibly be a bad thing? It's certainly more productive than doing nothing on Sunday. Um, but as, you know, time moves forward, church attendance has tended to drop off. But something to think about, it is important that we come together and we contemplate God's word. We contemplate what's good. We contemplate what's right. And we do that together. And I would say to do that on your own, you know, even if you're trying to do that, but doing it on your own is very difficult at best. We really need that community of support to help us do that. You know, for people who say, I am a Christian, doing that proves that we believe what God says. When we come together and assemble together and talk about and think about and look at the things that are highest priority, what God says is right and good. Because if we say we believe something, but we don't live it out, do we really believe it? Do we really believe it? If we say we believe something, but we don't live that out, if it isn't shown in our life, do we really believe what we say we believe? James, uh, the brother of Jesus, writes in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, he says, What does it profit, my brothers, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, and yet give them nothing that the body needs, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, it's dead. That's an interesting interesting uh, few verses James writes there. They're quite challenging to think about. And last week we talked about how there are many people in the world, in our community, who would say, I believe in God or I'm spiritual and all these different things. Um, and if we define that, a lot of people are gonna have different definitions of what that means. And saying is different than doing. You know, if we say we believe God, we say we believe what he says. Okay, saying is different than doing. And if I say I believe, does my life prove that? Is that made manifest in my life? James also wrote, you know, you say you believe there's one God, good for you. Even the demons believe that and tremble. So saying I believe something is sometimes different than actually believing it. You know, we're, we're all, we all do this sometimes. We've, we've all done something and we're, we're, we're well practiced at it in our culture. And when we say something, well, I think this, or I believe we should, or I believe that, 
but that's all we do is say. And our life doesn't actually reflect what we say we believe. You know, if all we do is say, but our life doesn't show, do we really believe what we say we do? But whatever you believe, good, bad, or otherwise, it will be apparent in your life. It'll be apparent in your life without the need for you to say it. It'll show. And that's what James is getting at when he talks about faith without works is dead. Because we need to, and we need to handle that carefully because we can easily turn that into an unnecessary burden. And I've seen a, a lot of struggle with that. Uh, there's been a struggle for some and that it has been taken to mean that I have to work my way into God's favor. I have to try hard, you know, which is impossible to meet God's perfect standard. Or I know God accepts me, but I, I, I feel like there's different degrees in that and, I, and based on how hard I try. But, you know, Jesus relieved us from that burden in the gospel. But we still live in a way that shows what it is that we believe. And does what we say we believe line up with what we actually believe? Does what we say we believe manifest itself in our life? I heard someone say once, if you were, con you know, if, if you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I suppose that's kind of the point I'm trying to get at. If we, say, if we say we have faith, that will manifest itself in a visible way. It will come out in the things we do. And the church is a community, the community where we can come together and contemplate and reinforce in ourselves and encourage each other in understanding and defining and doing those things. And it's where we fill our mind with what is true, what is right, what is good in community, in common unity together. And we are supplied and filled and encouraged to live those things out throughout the week as we go about whatever it is we do during the week. Now, another important defining aspect of church is diversity. Diversity. Um, that word is definitely quite popular these days. We hear that all the time, uh, diversity. And the word itself just means a variety or mixture of something, diverse. Um, could be You could use it for just about anything, really, that's uh, um, a variety or mixture of something. And in Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, chapter 3, verse 28, he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, opened up access to God for everyone. We all have equal access to God through Jesus Christ. When Jesus was crucified, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that access to God. And as a result of that, in the churches we read about in the New Testament, there was a lot of diversity. And it, it makes it a little easier to understand those letters when you think about that, how diverse these churches were. And in many ways, that was difficult for people. And that's one of the things that Paul was writing about, was the challenges they faced of all these different kinds of people coming together. Um, there were people who were Jewish, and they had grown up that way, and they had lived in that life, and uh, they had related to God in that way in their past. But there were also many other people who were becoming part of these churches we read about in the New Testament, who believed the gospel and trusted Jesus. And 
they were, were very different. They would have come from different religions, uh, Greek mythology, things like that, different views on race, different views on gender, different races and genders. And everything about these people in these churches we read about in the New Testament would be very diverse. And that was often a struggle for them. It was often difficult from different backgrounds and cultures. If you've ever switched cultures and lived cross-culture, you know that's a channel challenge from language spoken, spoken to the foods they ate to uh, cultural differences. It's, it's all pretty amazing stuff. And then put persecution on top of that. And the only way to explain the success of the early Christian churches in, in carrying out the mission Jesus had uh, for us is that God was working that. And the Holy Spirit was uniting these people together because cultural differences are difficult. And you also, from that verse you read, we, you see we have, have, he mentioned slaves, he mentions different classes of people, different genders, different races, uh, with, with all their different problems, and they're coming together as a community to worship and serve God. And Paul says, you're all one in Christ. And all of these different backgrounds, nationalities, genders, all of these differences are coming together, and Paul says you're one in Christ. And when I say diversity, um, the mind of most people probably goes to things like skin color and gender. Um, and we often hear people talk about strength in diversity, which is true, but again, that depends on how you define diversity. Um, the kind of diversity that involves skin color and gender and things like that is, is, should be a foregone conclusion in church, and that shouldn't even need to be explained. But that particular topic could use some wisdom and clarification and, and, and try not to get myself in trouble. But for churches, strength is found in diversity of talents and personalities. Talents and personalities. It's found in the diversity of things in the people God has called together for his purpose. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, a church that struggled a lot uh, with a lot of moral issues and also a very diverse church, a church that was made up of people from different cultures and backgrounds and races and genders and even very different religious backgrounds. And he says to this church and to all churches, really, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has established the parts, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased him. If they were all one part, where would the body be? So there are many parts, yet one body. And Paul is telling the Corinthians and us as well, he says you're one body together, and you function together, and God has put you together as it pleases him to do. And each of you are part of that body. I'm part of that body. And God has established it as it pleases him. And something Paul is teaching is that there isn't a priority of value or importance among us. There's not a priority of value or importance among us, which is something the Corinthians struggle with. James talked about that as well, that people were struggling with like giving some preference to wealthy people. And that still happens today. Sometimes we, we struggle with the same things. But we all have a part to play in this church. And the diversity of personalities and talents and people united together in the same body with Jesus as the head is how church functions. So church 
is a, a metaphorical body made up of many different parts. Many different parts. And all those parts are working together to live out the purpose Jesus has for us as we follow him. And that leads us to the third trait of a church. And church is a community of people who have a shared identity. Shared identity. All these diverse people have a shared identity. And it's manifested by the Holy Spirit. And it's recognized by other people, which is an interesting thought. We, you know, we can say we're something, but like I said, it's proven in what we do. Okay, we can say we're something, but it's proven by how we live, by the things we do. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has several interactions with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture to study because these groups, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians, would normally not get along for any reason. They probably wouldn't even have, have acknowledged each other, passing each other in the street. But they had come together to try to get rid of Jesus and, and ask him some questions that they thought he couldn't answer or he wouldn't be able to answer. They want to trap him. And they see this as a way to either bring the, the Jewish people or the Roman government against Jesus and, and get rid of him. And they asked him, the first question they asked him was about taxes. Taxes, we all love paying taxes. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And the reason they asked that question is because the Jewish people thought that they shouldn't have to pay taxes to Caesar, but of course the Roman government disagreed. And they thought, well, if he says uh, it is lawful, we'll bring the Jewish people against him. And if he says, well, it's, it's not lawful and we shouldn't have to pay those taxes, we'll bring the Roman government against him. And that was their plan. And so they asked him a question about taxes. And then uh, they ask him a question about marriage in heaven. And this one's from the Sadducees. The first one's from the Pharisees, and then the Sadducees ask him a question. And in Jewish law and culture, if a man died, it was his brother's obligation to take in his brother's wife and marry her and have children with her so she would have children. Children were very important. You know, they uh, uh, took care of their parents when they got old, all those kind of things. But he was obligated to do that. And the Sadducees ask Jesus, they say, okay, so let's say there's seven brothers. One dies, the next brother marries, that brother dies, the next brother marries, and you go down the line, and this woman is married to seven different brothers. Which one of those brothers is this lady going to be, whose wife is that going to be in heaven is what they ask him. And you can go back and read these and find Jesus' answers to these questions. But then he builds up to this last question. And they get someone who is an expert in Old Testament law, and the law of Moses, and they asked Jesus, he asked Jesus, he says, what is the greatest commandment? So he's gone through the Pharisees, the Herodians, and now he's got this expert on the law, and he says, what's the greatest commandment? And I don't know the background of this guy asking the question, but my guess is he would have spent a lot of time talking about this with other experts of the law, countless hours discussing the Old Testament law, trying to rank order these commandments, and they had probably come to the conclusion that you just can't put God's commandments in an order of importance. And so anybody who tried to do that was going to be wrong, and they would be able to bring that against Jesus because whatever he said, they think, okay, he's going to be wrong. And that's why I asked Jesus which commandment is most important. But he didn't order them. Instead, he summed them up, and this is what he said in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 
And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus sums up all the Old Testament law, all the writings of the prophets, saying, love God, love your neighbor. That sums up everything. That's what God's people do. If you follow those, everything else will fall into place. And then in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says this to his followers. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So a large part of our identity as a church is not defined by what we tell people, but what people see in us, which is a really interesting thought because Jesus said, this is how people are gonna know you're my disciples the love you have for each other. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? That that's how people know. How do people see you and me? How do people see our church? Something to complicate. There's a, there's a discussion topic we can talk about in cafe this morning. How do people see me? How do people see you? How do people see this church? How do they define it? Love for God, love for our neighbor, love for each other, defines us, defines who we are. Love is an identifying trait that defines church. That's what Jesus said. And if that's how we define ourselves, is that a reality? Something to think about. If that's not how we define ourselves, if that's not how other people see us, are we following Jesus or are we following something else? Definitions are important. Definitions are important, how we define things. And the last trait we're looking at today that defines church is perpetuity. Perpetuity. It's kind of a funny word, perpetuity. But one of the beliefs that Christians share is that Jesus will return. Now, a lot of different opinions on when, and I'm not even going to dive off into that. That always goes pear-shaped. But we can't agree that he's coming back. We can't agree that he's coming back. We know that for certain. We know that for sure. More importantly than when is that he's left us a job to do. He's given us purpose until he returns. And it's often referred to as the Great Commission. And this was the purpose I was talking about earlier. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It says, Then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now that purpose of making disciples has been perpetuated and shared by churches, Christians throughout history. It's been an ongoing thing for, for a couple or 2,000 years, a couple of millennia. And the fact that you and I are here together right now proves that to be true. That proves that people in the past have believed that. And not only did they say they believed it, they lived it out. And you and I are proof of that. Christians who have come before us have believed that, they've lived it, and we're proof. We prove that to be true being here. 
It's a good thing to think about. It's good to remember that. You and I are here right now because followers of Jesus have perpetually worked together as a diverse community, identified by love, teaching what Jesus taught, and making disciples. And it's pretty amazing when you consider the gravity of that. And you know what are, what are the chances of that without that being the truth, without God working in that? You know, what, what are the chances of that being a reality over the course of 2,000 years? I'd say slim to none. Now is our moment, our time, our part in that history where it's our turn to perpetuate that. That's what we're here to do, to share the gospel, to share God's love with each other, like we talked about so much through the book of Acts, in sharing the gospel and helping people, alleviating their suffering, to tell people there's something bigger and better and there is deeper meaning to life than just being here for a while, collecting what you can and then leaving it all behind. There's truth in God's word that is transcendent and there's a community of people who live that, and that's us, that's us. A community that believes that God loves you, that God made a great sacrifice for you in his son, Jesus, giving us the opportunity to be part of his kingdom for eternity. Because we're separated from God by our sin, and if we really look inside and reflect and, and are honest with ourselves about it, it's not difficult to come to that realization that I'm not perfect, I sin, I disobey God, um, I'm separated from him. But that's why he sent Jesus. So we don't have to carry that burden. So life can have deeper meaning. So, you know, life can have uh, an eternal future. When we repent of those things and turn away from that and turn to Jesus, he saves us.